Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Tuesday, the 12th of January, 2021. Dr. Gary Groman presents an update, giving us his timely and important perspective as a virologist on issues dominating the media, such as the UK mutation, the vaccine rollouts, and our recent Sydney clusters. Dr. Groman, can you tell us about yourself? Uh, yes, I'm a consultant virologist, David, and I've worked most recently for the World Health Organization in the area of vaccines and biocontainment and biosecurity. And uh, prior to that, I spent 17 years at TGA, and prior to that, I had an academic and research career. Gary, since we last spoke, so much has happened in the COVID-19 space, and I'm not sure how to be specific, but I thought what I will do is to hand it over to you to just highlight to us some of the big things that has happened since sort of like a mid or end of uh, December. Uh, it's like a catch-up uh, interview. It's well, over to you. Yeah, no, thank you, David. It's certainly there's been an avalanche of information and an avalanche in the media and on social media in particular, and also in medical journals and in some ways that's good, in other ways it leads to a lot of uncertainty. So I think the first point I'd like to make is we need a steady hand. We need to look at everything very, very carefully and in a very consistent way. I guess the most important thing on people's mind is this new variant that has appeared. Now, mutations arise as a natural byproduct of viral replication and we also, in, in addition to that, we need to understand that RNA viruses and coronaviruses and RNA virus typically have higher mutation rates than, say, DNA viruses. Mm -hmm. Influenza is another one that has a very, very high mutation rate. Coronaviruses, not so much. It's actually quite low for an RNA viruses. While they make fewer mutations than most other RNA viruses uh, for a whole lot of reasons, uh, new mutations do arise by natural selection. That gives mm -hmm. a slight competitive advantage in transmission or in replication or often to escape from immunity. And these things will increase in frequency. And some viruses will, in fact, be cold and disappear, as we see with flu. Different clades or groups will disappear. The same is happening here. Now, we have had many variants of coronavirus. This is not a new event. And that's the first thing I want to point out. Um, there are new mutations happening all the time, but we've seen this since February last year, uh, where different variants have come along and different clades. So we see different clades all around the world, L, V, O, S clades, but the most predominant clade around the world now is the G clade, and it's been predominating everywhere. And there are several groups within that, for example, GR and GH, and now this new one called GB. Uh, there are different variants in South Africa, as there are in the UK. And honestly, next month, we'll have different variants again. Mm. And this is because of mutations at a particular point. So, for example, when you read uh, D614G, uh, that's an aspartic acid to glycine substitution at position 614 in the spike protein. And uh, that's important to virologists and immunologists, vaccinologists, because we know there's a change there. Now... In our previous discussions, most of these variations have not been in the spike protein. Now, all of a sudden, they've crept up into that region. So mm -hmm. we've seen more and more. So we've seen a change of position 614 
in when we were talking about mink not that long ago, that was a change in the spike at position 453. Um, and now we've got a change at N501Y that everyone is talking about. And uh, that's what we now call the lineage B117. So this particular variant uh, appears to be increasing, but why? I mean, virologists are not surprised. Uh, as some variants go down, other variants will come up and we need to include the fact that uh, there might be some complacency or slackness in, in the fact that um, uh, in people's practices. And of course, we've had Christmas and New Year's, so there's been more social gathering uh, mm -hmm. and close contact. So it's not surprising a new lineage will arise. We see this all the time with lots of virus. It's not just coronavirus, and it is to be expected. The, the good news is this, that it is not causing any more morbidity or mortality. In fact, it's causing less. And as the pandemic goes on, that's what we expect. The virus will not become generally more severe or cause more mortality. And that also appears to be the case. We get very caught up with our naught and our numbers uh, in terms of uh, the rate of infection. Uh, and some animal experiments have now been done, David, to show that it is slightly more transmissible, but it's almost mm -hmm. a percentage of a percentage. It isn't really something dramatic like going from 5% to 50%. There's nothing like that, as you might see with influenza in terms of severity uh, for H1N1 might mm -hmm. be X, but for H5N1, it's going to be X plus 50 uh, in, in terms of severity. Uh, and, uh, and But it's very, very low on infectiousness, as we might call, call it. So I don't think there's a lot to worry about with new variants. They will come. They will continue to come as the virus evolves and changes. And as more people move around and come into contact with each other, give the virus a new host and therefore an ability to replicate, it will mutate at some point somewhere. And there's no question about that. That's exactly what viruses do, except in this case, we're concerned not really about transmissibility. We're more concerned about where it's mutating, and that's the spike protein. So the next question is, will it affect the vaccines that are targeted to the spike protein? And the good news is the answer is no. All the current vaccines that are currently uh, being made and are, and are slowly being rolled out and made available in Europe and the US will also have an appropriate immune response to this particular variant. So there's no need for concern on that front. Now, having said that, in the future, it is expected there'll be enough changes in the spike protein to force a change in the vaccine. And that can be done pretty simply compared to say something like flu, which might take nine months uh, to achieve. But in this case with RNA and viral vectors, uh, protein vaccines as they come along because of the way they're being made, it will be much faster. It'll probably take six to 10 weeks maximum and then need to be approved by the regulator, of course. But strain substitution, if we can call it that, or simply changing the virus or uh, antigen or RNA in the vaccine, depending on the type of vaccine it is, can be done relatively quickly. And we have a lot of advance notice because we have an extraordinary database called KISAID, which has nearly 300,000 sequences in it now. And it's pretty much real time all over the world, for most countries anyway. <laughs> and uh, that means that scientists can have up-to-date tests 
They can have up-to-date vaccines. They can have up-to-date phylogenetic trees and charts to track the virus to see at what points it's mutating in the spike protein. So I don't think there's too much to worry about there. And I think for GPs, we can reassure patients that uh, things are all okay at the moment and that scientists and medical scientists and vaccine manufacturers, database um, providers are very much on top of all this. And uh, it's this wonderful exchange of information, uh, starting with the databases that has allowed us to be in this position of some confidence. So I hope that reassures your listeners. Yeah, that's very helpful things, Gary. Maybe we can just now look at how the vaccine is rolling out um, globally and how uh, we're looking at it in Australia. Right. So probably all aware from press reports that the mRNA vaccines are being rolled out in Europe, UK and the US. Uh, the EMA has approved them as the MHRA, the two important European regulators, and now the FDA. So the mRNA vaccines are slowly being rolled out, but there is quite a bit of pushback from the community to take these vaccines. And there's some uncertainty or hesitancy uh, in their uptake. So are they safe? Are they efficacious? I think is the question that people are asking you at, you know, uh, around the pub to give it a pub test. And I think most people would agree that the data on efficacy is very good. Uh, scientists uh, and medical people are going to say, well, if efficacy is done in the highly controlled uh, arena and effectiveness is done in an uncontrolled arena where everyone is involved, so effectiveness will actually drop. But even an effectiveness of 80% or 70% will be incredibly useful. But it is true there's still a lot we don't know. We don't know, for example, um, if every group can receive this vaccine. So the first group that's been highlighted is those with anaphylaxis or allergy. And in the CDC report just this week, uh, numbers were uh, produced on the Pfizer vaccine uh, showing that a small number of people have anaphylactic reaction. And when they do, they generally have a history of anaphylactic reaction. That's not a very large number. It's about 11 per million people. Uh, and while that number sounds small, I think it's really important that GPs and health providers ask this question about a history of allergy and particularly severe allergy. And uh, it would be sensible, obviously, to observe uh, the person getting the vaccine for a good 30 minutes. And that's what this paper reports on from CDC, that when they look at people for a quarter of an hour or half an hour, they pick up about 90% of people that are going to have a severe reaction from of one degree to another. I think the concern for Australia in that regard is that a lot of Australians do have allergy, whether it's food allergy or mm. some other form of allergy. Um, and we need to be aware of that. So a very good question to ask the person receiving the vaccine is to make sure you have a history of allergy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of cases of asthma in Australia for, for example, I don't know there are any studies uh, on people with a history of asthma receiving these types of vaccines, these RNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. so that, that's still a question mark. The second thing is how long does the antibody last? It seems to be about only two or three months, but then we don't know about T cells after that and how they act because we just haven't had the time mm -hmm. to study large numbers for a long time. And we have limited data on older people, although 
Uh, papers in the New England Journal would suggest that most reactions are mild, but occasionally they're severe, particularly on the second shot. So it will be very important to watch um, uh, patients receiving the vaccine uh, on the second shot to see how they react and to report any of those reactions back to the TGA, uh, which is easily done through the portal and so on. So that that is really important that um, the regulators uh, do receive all the information possible. Uh, as, and, and, and that's that's going to be incredibly useful in monitoring the safety of these vaccines, which ultimately will give confidence in allowing them to roll out. There are practical issues, as we've discussed before. Some of these mRNA vaccines require minus 70 transportation. I believe that problem has been solved with very, very clever eskies. But nevertheless, there'll be extra work to do in clinics that are rolling out this vaccine in terms of thawing and taking it up and putting it in the fridge and then making sure that the vaccine is used as soon as possible um, to uh, preserve integrity of the messenger RNA. Uh, there are some other issues that are unknown. For example, transverse myelitis and myositis are issues that were picked up in the phase three studies. Not at very high numbers, but nevertheless, it is a concern because um, if you think about it mechanistically, um, we're forcing muscle cells to produce antigen. We've never done that before with a vaccine ever. Uh, and we all know that when muscle cells start producing foreign antigen, uh, there is a possibility of autoimmune disease. Now, that's mm -hmm. something that could be uh, a long-term safety effect, and we just don't know. If it, if it exists, it will probably be in a very small number of people. But again, we have no data. And an adage in regulatory world is uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. so, so one has to be incredibly careful. Um, I think in following these vaccines for the long term, these have never been used in humans before. And while I don't mean to put out uh, any wave of fear or anything like that, I just think it needs careful consideration uh, in the uh, with doctors and patients mm -hmm. uh, with these mRNA vaccines. Now, the other vaccines are more straightforward. The protein vaccines are basically a classic form of vaccination that we know well. We know the immune response of protein vaccines and their safety with the safe adjuvants. So I don't expect there will be any issues there. With the AstraZeneca type of vaccine, which is the viral vector vaccine, this is also a new platform. There were some cases of transverse myelitis. There's the issue of using a half dose followed by a full dose, which uh, really they've yet to report on. Um, but nevertheless, again, the efficacy is very, very good at over 90% in phase three studies. And again, expected to drop for phase four or real time studies. Um, not all groups have been um, tested. Of course, children have not, uh, even younger teenagers. Uh, and uh, some vaccines have not been tested in a key target group, which is the over 70s. All the numbers have been very, very small. Mm -hmm. so mainly these vaccines have been tested in phase three studies in 18 to 60 year olds. And so we are extrapolating a little bit for the older person, although there is some data I don't want to be too unfair about that. There is some data, certainly not as expansive or extensive as the data for the 18 to 60-year-old group. Gary, I have uh, two questions. Uh, the first one relating to the mRNA. You're saying that if you have any allergies like asthma, we have to be a little bit more cautious in monitoring them or giving them. 
What about simple allergies like rhinitis and eczema? Would you exercise the same degree of caution? Look, I think I would for any allergy, David, because uh, this is a whole unknown area. Nobody's gone in looking for allergy endpoints. Or, uh, you know, most people in the phase three studies who have had allergies, and particularly history of allergy, have actually been excluded. So I think this is important to know that in phase three studies, although they're very large and very good, they're in very healthy people. This is the highly selective group where many groups are excluded, those with immunodeficiency, um, those with uh, combined, uh, comorbidities, those mm. with diabetes, those that are pregnant, those that are children. There, there are many groups that are excluded, those with a history of allergy. We're also excluded when you look at the clinical protocol of the Pfizer study, which is a published protocol now. So, um, yes, we're going to have to be careful with these vaccines. It's not that we're... Um, uh, need, need to be fearful of them, but I think we have to be cautious. We uh, uh, GPs will know their patients, uh, and they'll need to keep an eye on them for uh, any safety reactions. Mm. As soon as one happens, it's really important to report it to the regulatory authorities. Yes, and you did make it quite clear that we should be extra careful with the second shot. Yes, uh, uh, because there's actually evidence. Um, again, published by CDC, of a slightly higher risk there. And again, the numbers aren't large per million, but uh, it could be the tip of the iceberg. So I think, again, uh, uh, you know, care and caution, observation, awareness uh, needs definitely to be in place uh, in the, in, uh, with, with regard to those patients. Very, very important. And I think I'd keep an eye on that uh, in the literature. Um, <laughs> Uh, I certainly am looking for reports on anaphylaxis or any allergy for that matter. And the best one at the moment is the recent uh, CDC report, which is available on their website. Well, I might come back to you in time to come as you summarise what we're learning. Going on to the protein vaccines, the protein vaccines are clear. Some people um, voice concern about the types of adjuvants being used. Do you have any concerns about our adjuvants? No, the, the adjuvants are well known. They are, have a long history and MF59, for example, which is being used uh, for many of the vaccines has a very long safety history. Uh, other vaccines, which essentially saponins or oil emulsions also have a long safety history. Now, most people will be aware that sometimes there are surprises, like people were surprised by uh, an adjuvant using a pandemic vaccine for influenza uh, that caused narcolepsy in mm. patients that had a particular gene. Now, this is the kind of long-term safety effect that we don't know about right now. Okay. After COVID. So there's going to be all these theoretical or potential safety issues, but we don't really have uh, a handle on it yet. Uh, so we, it, it's just a matter of uh, wait and see for the moment mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and just being aware Things like Guillain-Barre syndrome, for example, would be a potential issue that people would need to look out for. Adjuvants themselves are very simple. They're either mineral salts like alum, oil emulsions with, uh, or surfactant-based things like MF59 or saponins. Uh, the, some of them um, are virosomes or uh, some of them have microbial derivatives uh, like lipid material, uh, and some have inert vehicles such as gold particles. But the history of these are pretty much well known. There's a lot of animal studies done on adjuvants 
prior to the use in humans anyway. And people do very careful studies to make sure the adjuvant itself is not immunogenic, because if that happens, you will get hypersensitivity. So uh, it does need uh, some, some care. Thank you. Now, um, I'm, I'm pretty much a lay person when it comes to all these new vaccines. So I'll ask a stupid question. Um, Gary, these vector vaccines are using, are using an adenovirus to, if you like, infect our cells and then put into our cells fragments of the SARS-CoV-2. Now, my question is, if my immune system is now primed to recognize the particular adenovirus, um, what would happen to those viral um, viability with the second shot? Uh, would it be less effective because my immune system will shut them down? Uh, it's certainly not a silly question. It, it's a very important question. And regulators in particular were worried about this, that maybe you could only get a vaccine like this once. So AstraZeneca, for example, Oxford are using an adenovirus vector which is a chimpanzee adenovirus, but it's non-replicating. Some are non-replicating and some are replicating. So if it doesn't replicate, but just delivers it like a Trojan horse, uh, then there shouldn't be a significant immune response to that particular virus. If there is, it'll be brief. So what happens on the second shot? It would appear in animal studies and now human studies phase one, two, that there are no issues. It can still deliver its package quite well and an immune response is generated. So I don't think there's... Um, any great concern about that, although it, um, it sounds pretty terrible in a way, taking a, another virus, uh, particularly an animal virus, uh, that's been modified so it doesn't replicate uh, to uh, deliver its package. But they appear to be fairly safe. Uh, they're being rolled out in the UK now, as you know. And uh, I, I think the issue that's arisen from the UK already is that they want people to get they want more people in the population to get one shot and delay the second shot instead of giving it a four weeks uh, to give it a 12 weeks. The idea being to give more people the first shot. So if they come across the virus in the field, they would have been primed. Now, this is interesting and a novel idea, but we haven't tested clinically or in any clinical trial what happens at day zero followed by week 12. Mm. Uh, as opposed to week four. I, I just don't know the answer to that, and I think it's a little bit of a risk. But the, I, I don't think the regulators approved that yet, the MHRA, but they have approved it for emergency use. But if the government decides and their committees that will get one shot, um, then um, people won't be immune. The concern there virologically is that the virus will escape the immune system and cause more mutations. <laughs> and uh, that is of concern to virologists like myself, for sure. And I think that's the danger. That's the you know a dangerous game to play. And I would be sticking to having fewer people fully immunised than just a few people partially immunised. I'm, I'm not sure of the logic of their um, program there in the UK in, in that regard. It's better to follow what you've found in the clinical trial rather than making variations after the clinical trial. Gary, you've voiced this concern before and you're voicing it again in a way. This is where political expediency uh, is triumphing over scientific research, isn't it? Well, it's important it doesn't. Um, none of this can be hurried, even though it's been sped up. 
we have to be extremely careful, as we've discussed before in this program, uh, understanding that we're immunising healthy people or immunising people possibly with uh, other illnesses, but they haven't got coronavirus. It's, it's important to understand that, that it must be absolutely safe. But we don't have long-term safety data. So everyone in the community needs to understand that, that there is some, albeit small, risk uh, in the long term. I think we've got and getting reasonable data for the medium term. By that, I mean six months. Uh, we can follow, I hope, they're all being followed up in the phase three studies to make sure that there are no medium term side effects. There are some people describing lethargy and so on. And we have to be extremely careful. So, mm. you know, as far as I'm concerned, the delay at the moment, I think, is a good thing, particularly in a country like Australia or New Zealand, uh, where we don't have extensive COVID. We're not mm -hmm. having 100,000 cases a day and 1,000 deaths and all those horrible numbers that appear overseas. And certainly, yes, you have to use a vaccine in that case uh, to try and stem uh, the virus uh, and its effects. But always remember... Uh, as, again, we've discussed in this program, even with any vaccination campaign, you'll still need all the restrictions that we've put in place on hygiene and movement. That is extremely important to stop the virus going from host to host so mm -hmm. it won't escape the immune system and mutate again and again and again. This is mm -hmm. really important uh, to understand that it's going to be a two-pronged attack, a passive one of restrictions and so on, and an active one of vaccination and treatment. Uh, and that's, that's really important to understand. They're going to go hand in hand for some time. And uh, uh, this is extremely important. So now, Gary, more locally, um, any comments about our recent Northern Beaches and Barella clusters? Well, look, we're going to see these from time to time, David. Uh, you know, I don't think we should be fearful of them, as we all seem to be. And then... Um, putting up red zones and green zones and border controls and all this kind of thing. What we need is what New South Wales has done so well, which is uh, uh, testing and tracing uh, and then home isolation. I mean, that's the answer to small outbreaks that happen here and there of five or 10 or 20 people. Uh, that's what we need to do. And it's being done extremely well in New South Wales. And of course, the numbers are going down and then they'll disappear. But of course, there'll be another cluster. You can't eliminate the virus completely because of asymptomatic and silent infection. And people don't understand this in general. Virologists understand it because, you know, we know that uh, any, in any population, 20% of people are carrying one virus or another all the time. There's no question. If you look at sewage effluent, you will easily find, for example, a variety of adenoviruses and enteroviruses by insensitive tests like cell culture. Mm. Uh, uh, we, we know they're there and, and they're being circulated all the time, but 90% of the time they're silent infections. It's the same with COVID, influenza. They don't disappear. They appear to disappear. They just silently go from person to person. Unless um, I think having border control or particularly international border control is extremely important, followed by quarantine, and that's an excellent pathway. And when there are community outbreaks, which will be small from time to time and there'll be an occasional cluster, then yes, you contact, uh, sorry, you test, you trace, you trace their contacts and you ask them all uh, again to get tested and home quarantine until there's a result. And that's a reasonable and logical way forward. Um, uh, states can stop borders if they wish uh, and they have, uh, but 
when there are statements like they're going to crush and kill the virus or eliminate the virus, they're truly kidding themselves. I don't understand virology at all if they think that. Because uh, that can never happen unless there's an extraordinary sterilizing vaccine campaign such as for polio, measles, mumps, rubella, or smallpox. They're the really good examples of essentially eliminating viruses. But even then, of course, being biological creatures, the immune response doesn't work 100% for everybody. So even there, there's immune escape. And the only times it has worked in a sterilizing sense um, is for viruses like smallpox and polio, which have essentially been wiped out, and other viruses like hepatitis A, B, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, and a number of bacteria have been well controlled through vaccination if over 90% of the population take the vaccine. If 100% take it, there's still going to be point something percent that won't respond properly and the virus will still continue in its own way endemically um, until uh, it becomes completely controlled through a sterilising vaccine and in combination with community awareness and distancing and so on. And that's the approach needed for our coronavirus. We need to understand the nature of the virus as well as the nature of pandemics. And people haven't focused much on the nature of the virus, but uh, they're more focused on epidemiology and politics and the rest of the moment. Well, Gary, you never fail to reinforce for all of us that uh, the active and passive must go hand in hand. And I appreciate your, uh, again, restating that. But this time around, Gary, our Premier at New South Wales made masks mandatory in some places. Voila, it's happened. And the people haven't completely thrown their arms up in despair. So it's not too bad. No, wearing masks is a rational thing to do because it protects the community against people that are asymptomatic as well as symptomatic. I mean, if you're yes. symptomatic, you'll probably know about it, get tested and stay home, or well, 90% of people will. But when you're asymptomatic, that's the danger. Um, when in, in my very early studies in the 70s, uh, I was always fascinated by Japan. When you go to Japan and get on a bullet train, you'll mm -hmm. find half a dozen people in the carriage wearing a mask. I used to think in my naivety it was because of pollution or they didn't want to get something. But it, the reason is that they didn't feel well and they didn't want to pass anything on to anybody else. So they wore a mask on public transport and also people would generally stay away from them. But it made just so much sense. Um, so when people have mild infections or asymptomatic infections, by wearing a mask, by being careful, by washing hands, even wearing gloves, as a lot of people do in uh, Japan and other places, uh, this makes extraordinary sense. And it stops other people from getting any virus you happen to be carrying, and in this case, coronavirus. So I think it really does make sense uh, to wear a mask when you're out and about, particularly particularly if you're in a risk group, particularly if you're a frontline worker, I would definitely be wearing a mask in those situations. And in fact, I do when I go to the supermarket and so on. Uh, not that there's any COVID in Canberra, but it's a sensible precaution. And, and lastly, Gary, uh, any comments about um, our time frame? Uh, who's going to get it first? Um, and how are we at getting the education out to the GPs and other vaccine givers? Yes, I think government now has a policy out on who they're vaccinating first, which will be frontline workers and high-risk groups, and possibly Indigenous, I think, come after that. I, I haven't looked at that policy for a while, 
but whoever they vaccinate first, they need to follow. And um, it's important to roll it out in an orderly way uh, so there's no wastage. Um, and also combined with that, as you alluded to, there should be uh, an education program about the vaccine so people understand what minimal risks there are, uh, uh, what's been done, what's known, what the efficacy is, how we'll protect and so on. I think it's also important to mention, although I don't know TGA's view on this, is that if we're rolling out two or three vaccines, which I'm sure we will in due course in 2021, uh, viral vectored, uh, MR, probably two mRNAs and um, uh, protein vaccine more towards the end of the year, assuming it's all approved, uh, then um, it's important not to mix and match vaccines, although regulators have yet to comment on this, but this makes mm. sense because there's been no trials on mixing and matching vaccines. Mm. So I think that's something GPs uh, should be aware of and look out for in government policy and regulatory uh, statements. Mm. So I, at the moment, I wouldn't personally recommend that vaccines get mixed and matched without clinical trials to back up that it's safe to do so. Not that they won't be efficacious, but that it's safe. There won't be some unknown safety trigger that we haven't spotted before. There's not mm -hmm. even animal studies that have been done using mixing and hatching at this stage. That's a very good point. And I hear you very loudly and clearly, Gary, that because these vaccines are going to be new for us in GP land, any adverse reactions must be reported to the TGA so that they know what's happening in real time. That's very important, I think. Uh, mixing and matching is another important point. Uh, explaining to the patient the risks of the vaccine and what they're actually getting so they're fully informed and making sure there's proper education of the patient mm -hmm. and doctors involved, the groups involved, the nurses and key frontline workers, allied health and so on are all very, very important people. Uh, and uh, they need to understand the risks too if, if they decide to receive the vaccine and also the risks if they decide not to receive the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is, um, you know, an, an important consideration. And, uh, we, you know, as I said before, we need a steady ship. We need a steady hand. And uh, that steady hand is going to come from frontline workers and in particular GPs. And we need to be very, very considered in what we're doing and why and how, and being able to explain that uh, to people who wish to receive the vaccine. That's extremely important. And even though things are moving along at speed, uh, and that's going to happen this year as well, there'll be a ton of information. I'm sure we'll be talking in future, but there'll be a ton of information coming through. And it's important that um, there are people around to summarise it or if GPs have time, to go to key websites to read it and some of the key ones are the CDC website, I think, uh, JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine and um, the WHO websites are all important websites apart from our uh, own websites for each state and the Commonwealth Department, the various departments of health will also be up to date. Also the Immunisation Coalition as well, uh, will, their, their website will also be up to date. So there's plenty out there to keep educating us all. Gary, I'm sure I'll be speaking with you in a not too distant future as, um, as these reports keep coming out. And I thank you once again for taking us on this update. It's been really helpful. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Gary. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.